Greetings, everybody. Good to see you this morning. <clears throat> well, we're starting a, an Advent series, and we have our candles and uh, songs of the season, and this uh, four-week series, The Night Before Christmas. And uh, obviously, we've uh, borrowed that title from that well-known poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," but we're going to take it in a little bit different direction here, because in the poem, uh, obviously, the night before Christmas is Christmas Eve. But, but in what we're doing with it, uh, the night before Christmas is, uh, is a metaphor. It's a figure of speech for the whole period of time from, in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, right on up to the birth of Jesus, a period of, of night, a period of darkness. And so over these weeks, we want to think about what that contrast is between the night and then the day that is marked by the coming of Jesus into the world. So, uh, for today, we'll take this title, After Darkness, Light. And we're going to pick a couple passages here that are well known. So, follow along as I read. Well-known passage from Isaiah chapter 9. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And you may remember that when Matthew describes the first preaching of Jesus when he was about 30 years of old as he uh, did that itinerant uh, ministry in the towns of Galilee that Matthew says that preaching fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet was speaking about, that those living in darkness have seen a great light. And then from John chapter 1, these well-known verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. <clears throat> so this is one way to summarize that long story that we have in the Old Testament and in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus. Those centuries, what were they like? And one way to think of them is to think about them as darkness, a darkness which was transformed by the coming of Jesus into the world. <clears throat> it is a hopeful story. This week of Advent, 
we focus on that theme of hope. Hope for what God is going to do in the future. The fulfillment of his promises. This story of Jesus, the story of light coming into the darkness of the world, that's a hopeful story. This thing is uh, really sensitive today. The hopeful story is that the broken world is going to be mended. The darkness reflects the brokenness, doesn't it? It reflects the fact that human beings, almost from the beginning of creation, human beings turned aside from their relationship with, with God himself. They said, we will be our own gods. And, and what we see recorded in those early chapters of the Bible is the disastrous effects of that defection. Fair to speak of it as darkness. <clears throat> darkness that was moral, that was uh, intellectual, that was theological. But the promise is that that darkness will not last. The hope is that God is going to address that situation. And the story of Jesus, the story of the light that comes and shines into the darkness, that the darkness is not able to overcome, that's the story we're going to be thinking about for these weeks. The darkness will give way to light. <clears throat> that's, what, uh, that's what the prophet Isaiah spoke about, right? The people living in a land of darkness have seen a great light. For them, the light has dawned. And part of what I want to think about with you today is that the dawning of that light is a, a gradual process. I've been, uh, I had my week hunting out in Ohio a couple weeks ago, and <clears throat> we have a, uh, an outfitter there that uh, is early. So he wants all his hunters to be early in the woods. So I've had a lot of opportunity to to sit in the woods while it's dark and watch the horizon gradually get lighter and to see the woods come slowly alive and to see uh, with greater and greater clarity what's happening around me. It takes time. You know, it takes about an hour till things get sufficiently clear to see. And the hopeful story of Jesus is one of light coming gradually, of dawning over the horizon, and the effects that that has in the world. The striking thing about this story is that when light comes into the world, the light turns out to be God himself. You know, in the Old Testament the prophets speak about the coming of the light and they themselves bring some of that light because they speak God's words. John tells us that 
the Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was full of life and light. So, so when the prophets speak the Word of God, it, it begins to brighten the horizon. But the full light comes with, with God Himself arriving on the scene. This is the, the mystery of our faith that, that astounds us that God would so love His creation that in order to redeem it and to bring it out of darkness, He Himself will show up. And that's what He does. That's what the wise men travel to Bethlehem to see. That's what the shepherds come to see as they worship by the manger. God Himself has appeared. Emmanuel is with us. That's that's the hopeful story that God is now acting and He is going to bring about the mending of the world. But here's what I want to think about. I touch that once and it does all that. I want to think about this as a story that actually transforms. That changes the way the world is. It's not just a story of hope. It's a story of of change. And and it's not just in the future. It's, It's now. So John says in his first letter, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And he says that after saying to the believers, you know, I've given you this old command... And yet it's a new command. I think he's talking about the commandment to love one another. And he says it's old, but it's new. And it's new in this sense that it is true in him and in you. It's true in you. And then he makes this statement. Why? Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. John says in in you and me. This light is already changing and it's transforming the way that we live. So when we talk about the hope of the Jesus story, it's a hope not just for the distant future. It's It's a hope for now. It's a recognition of what God has already done and what He's currently doing and, yes, what He will yet do. So in the Advent season, there is a sense of looking ahead to the second coming of the Lord in light of the coming that's already taken place. So hope looks ahead, but that doesn't mean that there's not that present sense of this story is here. The king has come. God has shown up in in broken planet earth and he is already putting things together.
So let's, uh, I believe Aaron is going to, over the next weeks, take some examples to help us think about that. I'm going to take one example today also. I want to think with you about the issues of equality and inequality and the way the coming of Jesus into the world has changed our perceptions of that. So are people equal or are they unequal? I uh, have developed a wrist problem that's keeping me awake at night. So I was awake a number of times this past week and I get up and pass an hour or two before I can sleep again. And uh, so I've I've been on YouTube listening to uh, Yitzhak Perlman play the violin. Arguably, I think, not, not a musician, but just arguably, from my standpoint, the, the, the greatest living violinist today. <clears throat> Did I tell you before that when I was young I took violin lessons? <clears throat> no, really, I did. Uh, six months, maybe. Uh, and then I decided that I had other things that I'd rather do than practice. Uh, It was a great mistake. I confess that now. It's uh, no longer redeemable, but uh, it was a great mistake. But, you know, had I stuck with the violin, had I practiced hours every day consistently for the last 60 years, You think, maybe, I, I could play with Yitzhak, you know, duets? Uh, no, <laughs> no, not, not seriously would I consider that. Because what's clear is that, as far as I can see, he, he's without equal. And certainly, I'm not his equal nor do I have the potential to be his equal. Okay, for those of you who feel left out on that illustration, uh, uh, let's talk football a little bit, guys. I'd say arguably Tom Brady is the greatest living, maybe greatest ever quarterback. I know we're into debate territory already. Not going to debate it, just making that affirmation, <clears throat> but I think to myself, you know, maybe, maybe if I'd gone out for football, you know, maybe, who knows, could have been my name up there, yeah, no, not seriously, you're not taking that seriously, because we recognize that people are in many, many ways, unequal. Right? And the ancient world recognized that. I mean, that was the most obvious thing to the ancients in ways that are not obvious to us anymore, at least we don't agree with. In the ancient world, difference was, and inequality was everywhere. Women were not equal to men. Right? Uh, women, uh, women couldn't possess much. They, they, they just 
They didn't have the same power, and uh, so that, that was clear inequality. Uh, cultured people like the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't consider themselves equal to the barbarian tribes. There was difference there. Rich and poor extremes, difference there, unequality, inequality. And then, of course, there's the, the slavery question. The ancient world was built, in many respects, on slavery. I mean, Rome's wealth and power was built on the back of slaves. The uh, figures uh, for the city of Rome uh, that I've seen, one in three people, a slave. And the estimates go higher. Some, some estimates are that, that one in every two people in the ancient world was a slave. There's marked inequality, right? And it's into this world of extremes of inequality that the light comes and the transforming story about Jesus and the love of God which sent him to us to heal our broken world. And one of the places that that, that story begins to have an impact is in this whole area of inequality. And uh, and particularly in the areas of slavery. So a high percentage of the early Christians were converted slaves. And you remember that, that little story that we have from the New Testament about the Apostle Paul, who uh, had a friend called Philemon, who was a slave owner. And uh, he had a slave that ran away named Onesimus. And it turned out that the slave ended up in prison where Paul was imprisoned. And Paul shared the gospel with him. Onesimus believed. And when he was ready to get out, Paul says, okay, now the thing is you need to go back to your master, Philemon. And I'll give you a letter. We, we have that letter in our New Testament. And it's very striking. You, you, you know the words there, right? Where Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, uh, your slave, but no longer just a slave, now a brother. And he doesn't tell uh, Philemon that he has to free Onesimus, doesn't tell him that, but there's deep implications in this notion that Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in the Lord, right? That's a, that's a glimmer of light that will have power now through the centuries. You know this guy? Tom Jefferson? 
writer of the, uh, author of the Declaration of Independence. And you know these words, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident, self-evident. But they're not self-evident, are they? The Enlightenment philosophers, like uh, Jefferson, they wanted to think that those truths were self-evident. But the witness of history is that that's not the case at all. Because what, what history is impressed with is inequality. But here we are at the time of the Declaration, and this is taken to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And of course, the framers of the Constitution were not consistent in that. Jefferson himself held uh, 600 slaves. So when he was talking about all men being created equal, it sounds like he was talking about males, primarily, who were white freedmen. That's probably what he's talking about. He certainly didn't apply it to his slaves. But now this, this is an interesting idea. See, where, where does this come from, this idea that all men are created equal, especially since we know that they aren't. I can't be Tom Brady or Yitzhak Perlman. So where does the idea come from? It comes from this transforming story about a God who loves the world Loves the world so much that he sends his own son, who was himself God, into the world to give up his life. And out of that flows a certain conclusion, namely that human life has sacred value. And it has, in some ways, I mean we have to qualify it, right? In some ways, it has an equal status before God. All of human life has value before God. There's an equality there that needs to be recognized and has increasingly been recognized throughout history. In, uh, in 1807, both Britain and the United States outlawed the transatlantic slave trade. And uh, other European nations were doing the same thing about that time. So that's early 19th century. And then the abolitionists in various countries began to push not just to abolish the, the transatlantic trade, but actually to get rid of the practice of slavery. That was a second move. <clears throat> In, uh, in France, 1847, 
There was a French priest who wanted to have a new Christmas carol to sing. And so he, <clears throat> he contracted a man named uh, Placide Capot, I believe was his name, to write a Christmas carol. And Capot did that. He, he especially focused on the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote this carol that was uh, then in the 1850s translated into English, <clears throat> and it's one that we still sing today, uh, the carol, O Holy Night. And uh, you re may remember uh, one verse in that, which says, Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. Sounds like Paul, right? And in his name all oppression shall cease. So 1847, the carol is written in French. 1848, France outlaws slavery for the nation and all of its dominion, its colonies. It's translated into English in the 1850s and quickly became a favorite of the American abolitionists. And as you know, 1860, we fought the bloodiest war in American history over that question of slavery and oppression. Today, today, slavery is not legally recognized in any country in the world. Now, there's bumps in the road, and, and see, the, the light dawns gradually. So even though slavery is not legal, the reality is that we still have human trafficking. We heard about this a few weeks ago with uh, Dan and Rachel Zook here, and that's a, that's a form of slavery in many of its manifestations. So, so there is still oppression, right? But, but there is a liberating dynamic as the light of God's truth shines into the world, that the darkness recedes, and it does it unevenly, I know all of that. But the reality is that the world is a better place it's a better place to live in now than it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. And the reason is not just because we are technologically superior. It's because we are also morally at a higher level than we were back then. I know that's hard to believe. And, and, and we live in a time for our particular culture of we have that sense of we're seeing decline, right? So it, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like the ocean. Uh, it ebbs and flows. But, but the high water mark continues to move up. Why? Because light has come into the world. And the darkness is receding. 
By the way, interesting little thing I, I ran into this week. You know that, that guy, Placida Capo, who wrote that hymn? He was an atheist. Just one of those little ironies. But what, it's, what it suggests to me is, see, the truth of what happened in Jesus penetrates beyond just us, friends. It penetrates into a darkened and broken world. And we have hope. Our hope is not, as some Christians unfortunately say, it's all going to burn anyway, and we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not our hope. Our hope is that this broken world is going to be restored and renewed and will ultimately fulfill the intentions of the Creator who began by saying, let there be light, and there was light, and who created human beings in His image and likeness, and He said, that is good. So, in this Advent season then, we are calling one another back to this marvelous story, this hopeful, this transforming story. And uh, what we want to do is, is pull the curtains aside, <laughs> even in our own lives, and welcome the dawning light and say, God, come into my life afresh, May the gospel, the good news about Jesus, may that impact me in a fresh way and drive away the darkness and bring the transforming light to bear on me that I can then radiate it to others and to the world. Here's what Paul says. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. How do you do that? Well, you welcome Jesus. Or as, as John says in, in the opening of his gospel, you receive him. You believe in him. And to as many as received him, he gave them the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So we welcome Jesus by renewing our faith, or if you've never trusted in Him, you put your faith in Him, you acknowledge that He is the one who brings light into the darkness, and, and you receive from Him the forgiveness of God and the love of God. That's our hopeful story. Live as children of the light. Invite our musicians to come forward.